Thank you, sir. Actually, the guarantee is if uh, you're over age 20, if 10 years from now you're not married, you bring a registration, we'll refund your money. That's the way that works. Now, we're going to be talking about the marriage success factors, and I want to say at the beginning that these are not necessarily prerequisites for marriage so that you go down a checklist, but these would be factors that you would find in the lives of those who have successful marriages. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together today to share our thoughts and to look into the Scripture. And Lord, we are grateful for this blessed institution of marriage that you have designed for the good of mankind. So we commit this time to you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us. We ask, Lord, that we might be able to see some things and understand some things that would be useful and helpful in living this Christian life that you have called us to live. And we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, I am very much encouraged that we have the entire family here today. Because so many times dad, dads go off on these conferences and then they come home and they line up the family and then they use that awful C word. From now on, we're going to be doing courtship around here. And the family says, oh, no. Even little brother knows that it's going to be bad. That girl at church making goo-goo eyes at him, he's not going to be able to do anything about it. Grandma is saying, oh, Lord, have mercy on us. So sometimes that's the way it is. I want everybody just to relax. I want you to put on your best ministry smile because we're not going to be talking about doing courtship, whatever that is. It means a million different things to a million different people. And we're not going to be suggesting that you ought to be doing courtship, we're going to be recommending that you do lordship. And we'll be talking a lot more about what that means, lordship. You can't go wrong with lordship. We'll talk some about the American dating system. We'll talk about a number of things, but we want to start right off at the top of the list, and that's this one. Evidence of a growing devotion to Christ in both partners. Very, very important. Young people, at this time in your life, you need to be closer to the Lord than you have ever been before, whether you're thinking about getting married or not. Because this is the season in your life where you're going to be making the big decisions, vocation and location and education and lifestyle and marriage and ministry and all those things that are added to it. So this is the time you want to be seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. That would be the goal. But here would be the enemy strategy. Here is a young lady, young man. They have not been in the American dating system. And let me just define that. That's where you go with this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. But then you stick with this one after about 10 years from starting when you were 14 years old. And it's actually better preparation for divorce than it is for marriage because whenever something goes wrong, you just break up with that one and move on to another one. So we're thinking about something of a more permanent nature than that. 
and you want to be seeking first God's kingdom and you want to be closer to Him than you have ever been in your life. If you're 15 years old, you want to start thinking about getting in the business with the Lord. Now here's the enemy's strategy on this deal. You have waited for a long time. You're 25 years old now. And Mr. Right Guy has come along, and now it's time to let the good times roll. Now be careful, because here's the way that works. Late at night, you're sitting there talking with this young lady, and she looks at you, and all of a sudden, she starts singing a little song. Breathe on me. Breathe on me. And you can't believe it. That was the very song that you were hoping that she would sing. And you get a little closer and you just start breathing on each other. And it's the most delightful thing you have ever experienced. And you're saying to yourself, hey, it's time for this. It's time to be breathing on each other. We waited all this time. Be very, very careful. Because when you start breathing on each other, that's going to mean some more things coming in down the line. And see, some people say, now, what are you, a legalist or something? The Bible doesn't say don't breathe on each other. But let me tell you, breathing on each other is going somewhere. And we want to see where it's going. So instead of seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, we got a new deal for you. Seek first the kingdom of romance and its excitement. And all these pleasures will be added unto you. Now, is romance a sin? Romance is a wonderful thing. I hope all of you have all the romance that you can possibly stand, but at the right time, with the right person. Very, very important. If you get there prematurely, that's going to create some problems. So what you do with the romance is going to make a lot of difference down the line. Years ago... James Dobson, Focus on the Family, took a survey of 10,000 American women, married women. Why are you depressed in marriage? You know, one of the top five reasons was that we don't have any romance in our marriage. Well, I was teaching in a Christian school at that time, a large Christian school, and I knew exactly why they didn't have any romance in their marriage. They spent it all up when they were 15 years old. And they had done just about everything there was to do and been about everywhere there was to go. And by the time they got married, it was the excitement was going downhill from there because it was all done. Now, I want to encourage you to be very careful because when you move over to the kingdom of romance prematurely, that forms a kind of a cloud up there. I mean, I know she's singing and she's got that misty look in her eye and it's wonderful, but you've got to be very careful. Because if you're breathing on each other, the Holy Spirit's not going to be breathing on either one of you. And that's the time that you really need to be coming together to make your plans for the future life and what's coming and the whole deal. Now, I need to tell you something. I don't know if you would believe this, but I'm just going to share some things with you from my heart this afternoon. And one of the things is this. I believe that most evangelicals and homeschoolers don't understand anything in the world about body chemistry. Body chemistry. If you're 15 years of age and older, you, you need to understand something about it. I don't mean experientially, 
But I mean, you need to understand what's going on because when that hits, bam, it's one of the most powerful forces on the earth. People will lie, cheat, steal, kill for body chemistry. I mean, even King David in the Bible. So you want to be very careful with that. You want to be prepared for what's going to happen. Now, here's something else that you need to know. Romance will make you crazy. Do you believe that? It's the truth. Now, romance is a good thing. If you have just married your honey and you want to act a little crazy, that's fine with me. But don't get there early. You know the biblical example of that? Romance will make you crazy. How about Samson? How about this guy? Delilah, she must have really been something, man. But he went through the routine there. Oh, you won't tell me what your great strength is. Oh, get some new bowstrings never been used before. Samson, Samson, the Philistines are on you. He throws those guys out the window and a new batch comes in. Samson, you won't tell me the source of your great strength. Well, you get some new cords that have never been used before. Well, you weave my hair in the loom. That must have really been something. And so four times, this guy goes through the very same thing. And the last time... He tells her the truth. Now, is that crazy or what? Romance will make you crazy. You'll get up the next morning and you'll say, Did I do that? Did I say that? Now, it's okay if you're getting married tomorrow, maybe, but you've got to be very careful with this because the thing that I see that it does is it clouds that relationship with God. And if you're getting married... This is a very important thing in your life. You don't want anything as an obstacle in the channel there. You want to have a direct communication with the Lord and be sure that you're getting it. You don't want that cloud to form. Now, here's something else that you need to know. Well, a couple of verses here. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Did you get that? Well, I'm just following my heart. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm 25 years old. I ought to know what's in my heart. Be very careful. That's the reason you want some wise counsel. That's the reason you want a little bit of guidance along the way. And then another verse, Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, here's what happens. Here's a letter from a young lady to Yvonne and myself. And she was 30 years old. This was a mature Christian girl. And she had a relationship with this guy, but there were some things that weren't right there. So we were discussing that with her, and here's what she says. Now that I'm out of the relationship, I can see more clearly the problems that we had. Thank you for your help so very much. Well, when that cloud comes and the Holy Spirit is cut off or grieved or quenched, you can't see things like they really are. And that's the time you really need to be able to see things. Now, here's something else you need to know. Emotional intimacy leads to physical intimacy. Well, we need to talk about these things. We're thinking about courting each other or doing whatever we're going to do, getting engaged. Well, that's good. Talk about them over brunch. About uh, 10.30 in the morning, the sun is shining bright. Little brothers and sisters are sitting around listening. I'm not saying you shouldn't have any private time together, but when it's uh, 1.30 a.m. in the morning... Emotional intimacy leads to physical intimacy. Now, there are a couple of things you need to know about the scale there. That's the physical intimacy scale. If zero is no, no physical contact at all, and some people say, well, we're going to be very careful about that. We're going to save the first kiss for marriage. 
and maybe we're going to hold hands or whatever it may be. You get to decide about that, but here's the thing. Once you get on the scale, and see the breathing is going to lead you on the scale there, once you get on the scale, it's very difficult to maintain the lower numbers. Well, we're not going to go past 25, whatever that is. Well, when are you getting married? Tomorrow? Well, no, we're getting married a year and a half from now when we've done this and this and this. Don't think you're going to be holding 25 for a year and a half. And see, then when you get to 45 on the scale, you start thinking, well, now I'm feeling a little bit guilty about this. We need to back things up here because I know that this is not really good and this is not where we want to go. You can't just back up on the scale. It's too powerful. Body chemistry too powerful. You've got to get off the scale if you're going to do anything about it. Now, let me ask you this. If you're functioning at 45 on the scale, I mean, maybe everything is good and you're getting ready to be engaged and, you know, you're grown and everything. But if you're functioning at 45, your mind is probably on 115 miles an hour. So Jesus has something to say about that too. So you have to decide where you want to function here because later on after marriage, there's kind of a trust factor that's very delicate. And when you get that burden of guilt from hitting some of the upper numbers here, uh, that can be a heavy burden for you to carry. So I would encourage you that uh, you don't want to think, as evangelical Christians, that you can preheat the oven without cooking the goose. And that's what a lot of people, I think, are thinking that, hey, we're, we're, we're evangelical. We're, we're homeschoolers. We know all this stuff. We're different. You've got the same body chemistry as everybody else out there in the world. And you've got to be aware of that, and you've got to guard these things. Well, how do we get off on that? We were talking about uh, evidence of a growing devotion to Christ in both parties. And what I've seen through the years is a young couple can be just moving right along with the Lord, but then suddenly they have, they're in that status of a relationship, and things are just kind of inching down the line in a wrong direction, and it forms that cloud and the time you need the Lord most. And His wisdom and His insight and understanding is a time when you would have it the least. So purpose right now, before things get going in terms of relationship, that you're going to be close to Christ during this time in your life, whatever happens. And any other aspect of that is this. Once the relationship gets going, it's a 24-7 thing. And there's no time even to have a devotion time. And if you get on that 1.30 a.m. cycle, you know, every night, 1.30, 2 a.m., then the next day, I mean, you can barely do anything. Maybe you got a job or I don't know what your responsibilities are, but you want to put the Lord in first place and you want to exercise that same kind of discipline and schedule that you hope you're going to be exercising later on after the wedding. Now, it's okay to go some places and maybe do some things, and I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the daily habit pattern and the daily trend of the way things are going. The devil is very subtle, and he likes to just lead people a little bit off track and get things started on a wrong relationship, a relationship of guilt, possibly, and then maybe bitterness. Well, let's go to a second one here. Clearly defined goals regarding life purpose. Now, I'm not talking about the work that you're going to do. Everybody needs to know work, your career, how you're going to earn money. We'll talk about that one. 
But I'm talking about the message that you want your life to communicate to the world. Now take the Apostle Paul, for instance. He had a number of different careers. He was a world traveler. He was a tent maker. He was a Jewish lawyer. He was a theologian. He was a writer. He wrote most of the New Testament. He was a jailbird. But when you think about the Apostle Paul, what do you think about? What comes to your mind? A guy sitting, sewing up a tent? That's not what comes to my mind. What comes to my mind is his life message. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward the mark for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're talking about here when we say life purpose. Number three, a means, excuse me, let's get the verse that goes with that one. A goal until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's my goal in terms of life purpose. And if I'm going to be moving toward that goal, I need to be really in business with the Lord uh, during those critical years that is the decision-making time for relationships. Now, these are not necessarily in a particular order after the number one. I think that would be the number one thing is seeking first Christ. But here we have a means. Uh, well, there's our definition on life purpose. The message we develop becoming a living translation of God's Word. And the goal is the character of Christ. Number three, means of an economic livelihood. Scripture says, prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterward, then build your house. Now, I'm not suggesting, guys, that you've got to have $50,000 saved up to get married. That might be a pretty good idea. But you either got to have enough money or you've got to get the expenses down low enough where you can make it. And a lot of times, uh, guys seem to be more interested in just, um, I don't know, kind of wandering around, playing sports, trying to figure out what's going on in life and trying out different things. And all those may be pretty good if you're not going to be married until 10 years down the line. But if you're thinking about getting married... You need to be thinking about a means of economic livelihood. Hey, here's an interesting chart, the American Medical Association. It says, are you under a lot of stress? Now, here would be just a, a measure of the stress you might be under. If your husband or wife died, that's 20 points. But listen to this. Have you found out soon that you would be a parent? Young couples get married, and a year later, uh, they find out they'll be a parent. That's nine points. Have you lost your job or retired? That's another nine points. I've talked to a lot of young ladies who were professional career women, and they would have a job, and they would be earning that money, and they would be living a standard of living that was right up where both salaries were necessary to pay a big fat mortgage on the house and support the lifestyle. And then all of a sudden she's pregnant, and that ought to be a joyful thing, but instead stress. Has a new member been born or married into your immediate family? Another eight points. Have your finances become markedly better or worse? Well, if the wife's salary is what we're living on and she's pregnant and she has to quit, <clears throat> the finances are going to be headed toward the basement. So we got the stress with that. Have you changed your job from a nice clean office where everybody's patting you on the back, telling you what a great job you're doing, 
to going home to be a wife and mother, and the world says, well, you're going to do what? Why, that's the worst thing in the world. Weren't you trained to be so-and-so-and-so-and-so out in the business world? And so the world doesn't give you uh, much accolade on that. That's another source of stress. So has there been a major domestic upheaval in your house. You get a baby coming in, that'll be a major domestic That's another five points. Well, here's what it says. If your score is 60 or more, the pressure on you is substantial. This means you're at higher risk from one or more stress-related problems. Well, financial difficulties equal stress. We all know that. And yet a lot of times the marriage begins with financial challenges. This would be one of the success factors, guys. Get ready for that. Get ready to prepare to support a young lady and children and a family. I think that's just the way God intended for it to be. Uh, Number four, consent and blessing of both sets of parents. If you don't get that, the in-laws will quickly become outlaws. So you want to be sure that you know the family pretty well, that they know you pretty well, and they, they are in favor of what you're planning to do. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long life, live long on the earth. That's just that's something for all of us of all ages, honor our father and our mothers. If parents have a caution... It would be wise to listen. Take some time. Pray. Take a period of time. Take 90 days. I recommend 180 days if there are questions. And just go to the Lord and let all the emotional fires cool down and say, Lord, is this really your will? I've seen some young couples do that. And before that time is over, they would call me up. Hey, Mr. Welch, uh, we're getting married, so and so and so and so. The Lord has shown us that's his will. I've seen some others at the end of the six months, I would say, hey, I, what about so-and-so? I'd be like, who? Who? They've forgotten all about the whole deal and gone on to something else. So the way you feel today is no indication of how you may feel two weeks from now, two months from now. That's the reason we can't base marriage on a feeling. We will get to one that relates to that pretty quickly here. Number five, commitment to a biblical solution to problems. Now, we could talk about the rest of the weekend a biblical solution to problems. But let me just ask the question why do Christians encounter problems along the road of life? At one time in my life, when I was very young, I thought if you're really doing God's will and you're really just uh, right in tune with Him, that life is just going to be one great big, what we all call, blessing. It's one great big blessing. If you have any problems, you must be like Job's friends told him, there must be something wrong in your life. God is not blessing you. Well, I found out since then that a blessing is anything that draws you closer to the Lord. And many times, difficult challenges draw us closer to the Lord. So we want to be thinking about taking those problems and turning them into blessings. Because the reason Christians encounter problems is to strengthen their faith and promote the cause of Christ. And in the process, to bring honor and glory to God. Hey, have you seen those health, wealth, prosperity preachers on television? Or maybe you heard one live in person. Do you think they ever read the book of Acts? 
Is that not incredible? That God's going to just give me everything and life will be wonderful and I'll have all the money and everybody will be blessing me. And those people in the book of Acts, every time they went to town, they got beaten up, a riot, thrown in jail, stoned to death, uh, almost, and all kinds of challenges. But many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. And when the Lord delivers him out of those afflictions, people see that and they say, you know, there must be something to that. The Apostle Paul got stoned here and he got right back up the next day and went in the same place and preaching the gospel again. There must be something to that. So God is using all those kinds of things. In James it says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now you say that out in the world, that sounds kind of crazy. But you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's what God is interested in. And you can think of your favorite athletic team. They're not just out there cooling their heels, taking it easy, drinking lemonade. They're at work, 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 get the job done. I'm not talking about works as opposed to grace. I'm talking about the fact that if you want your life to be what it ought to be and uh, you want to do the things that God calls you to do, Jesus said, strive to enter the narrow gate. You can't enter without the grace of God. You can't run and wrestle and fight and all those things it tells us to do without God's grace. But if you want to have a good marriage, you're going to have to get down and work on that. And the work begins before the wedding, long before the wedding. So here's the thing about the problems, at least as I would see it. When I was a very young married man, a man came to my church, and that man changed my life. The Lord threw him in one weekend. His name was Dr. J. Adams. And here's what he said. He said three things. God is in your problem. That's number one. Number two, God is up to something in your problem. Number three, God is absolutely up to something good in your problem. Now see the the way the world thinks. Here this problem blew in. I must have married the wrong person. Because if I'd married the right person, we wouldn't be having problems. Well, the world has its problems. Christians have problems as well to make us grow in Christ. So I want to be sure that I'm seeing that God has a purpose in my problems. Now, we're not going to talk about all the ways of solving problems because that's beyond the scope of even our discussion. But think about the Apostle Paul. He's an elderly man. He's been a faithful missionary. He's been through shipwreck and beatings and hunger and thirst and all those things that he says happened to him. And now he's uh, an older man, and I suppose he's ready to retire and be the president emeritus of the Judean seminary or something. But is that what happens to him? No. He appeals to Caesar. He goes to Rome. And in the book of Philippians, he talks about his bonds in Christ. So I'm assuming maybe he had some bonds, maybe his literal bonds. He's sitting there in a Roman prison, and he looks down the end of the chain, the bonds on this end, and he looks down on this end, and what do you think he sees? He sees a Roman soldier who is his guard. Not just any soldier, but the crack young lieutenants of the Praetorian Guard who guarded the city of Rome and the emperor. You see, Paul knows that he's not going to be going out 
to these other countries, Germania, Brittany, Gaul, all these places. But he knows those young lieutenants are going to be the ones that are leading the legions as their captains and their generals. And so Paul looks down and he sees these guys and he said, Oh my, look at this. How would you like to be chained up to the Apostle Paul on eight-hour shifts? Those guys probably needed ear protection. And man, he's hammering away at them with the gospel. And we know that he was effective in that through the power of the Holy Spirit because we see that there were believers in Christ even in the palace. And we know some years after that, we read about the Theban legion who were a bunch of guys in Caesar's army who were all Christians. And they said, look, you've got to take the incense and you've got to burn it and you've got to say Caesar is Lord. And they wouldn't do it. And they killed the entire legion. Some people say as many as 6,000 men. But they killed the whole bunch because they were believers. So see, Paul has a vision. i got a problem here. I'm in prison. But here is an opportunity, a very unique opportunity. Do you think these young lieutenants are going to come to Bible study on Tuesday night? I don't think they are. But they're there with the Apostle Paul, and they're with him day after day, and he is hammering away. And through his problem, he is able to assure, ensure that the gospel is going out. And it might be that in Europe and even in America, that some of Paul's work there while he was in prison would result in our being Christians today. I don't know all the connections, but I know here was a man who was faithful to see God working through his problem. So I want to encourage you, the pattern begins before you get married. How do you handle problems? And we'll talk a little bit more about that one. Now here's one, similarity in family background. The least considered of the most important, in my opinion. Sometimes when I would do the marriage preparation course, a lot of times I would have young couples who were 30 years old and they had been working and, you know, kind of living their own life for a number of years. So I would ask them to uh, send me uh, a letter or something saying what we needed to emphasize in the marriage preparation course. Well, here was a guy, he worked as a bank and his wife was a CPA. And he says here, uh, guess what? We had our first little fuss, and we hadn't even been married four hours. So you've got to know a way to solve problems here pretty quickly. But he goes on to say this. Probably the most difficult thing has been managing the differences in our families. My family is very open, affectionate, and always tries to avoid conflict. Hers is not as affectionate, private, and they deal with conflict. This is made for some very interesting discussions between us. Well, similarity of family background. When I was a junior in college, my college roommate went to Hawaii as a summer missionary. And he went to one of the out islands, which way back then, that was pretty primitive, one of the out islands. And he met a beautiful Polynesian girl. And the next summer after he graduated, he went back and he married that girl and they moved to California. Now, a guy from Mississippi and a Polynesian girl from Hawaii, the Out Islands. And see, this is wonderful. She's a Christian and he's going to be a minister and everything looked pretty good. But do you know, they couldn't get it together in California. California puts pressure on your marriage anyway. The culture is pulling pretty hard there. 
And they stayed married about three years, and that was the end of that. And see, this guy, he knew it was God's will. And he knew this was a wonderful Christian girl. And she knew he was a tremendous Christian man, but they never even thought about any similarities of family background. Hey, these are going to be the grandparents. Where are you going to spend the next thousand Christmases and Easter's and Fourth of July's and birthdays? It's going to be with all the family. So you just want to be sure that you've got some things going in that area. If you're weak in that area, maybe you better be very strong on all the rest and then see if you can shore things up a little bit on that um, number six there. Well, here's the scripture from the Old Testament. Genesis 24. Uh, Abraham says, And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you shall go to my country and my relatives and take a wife from my son Isaac. And that would be somebody who would be a believer and somebody who would be a little more similar to our family. Vaughn lived in Covington, Louisiana when we got married. I lived in Laurel, Mississippi. But our backgrounds were very, very similar. And that was a good thing because we were working on communication and problem solving and all these other things. But the similarity of family background in our families, that was a really good thing. And the Lord used that to help us. I'm not saying you can't marry somebody that you met somewhere at a conference or something. I'm just saying uh, get to know the person, get to know their family. Number seven, understanding of and commitment to true love. And this would be something that most of you are very familiar with. Love is not a feeling. Now, eros love is a feeling, and that's a great feeling, and God invented that. Phileo love is a pretty good feeling. We enjoy going to concerts together. We enjoy going fishing. And that's a good thing, and I think God invented that. But it takes agape love to undergird the relationship. Romance will not carry it. Infatuation will not carry it. It's highly self-centered. It's up and down. It gives no thought to the future. It's the right now is about all we're interested in. But agape love is not a feeling. Here's what it is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always hopes, excuse me, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love is something that you do. Act your way into feeling instead of feeling your way into acting. This kind of love is something in the Scripture that is commanded. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. It is something that can be taught and willed. The older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands, love their children. And it's something that you do. It's not something that just floats down upon you walking down the street. You see this beautiful girl? Wow, I think I'm in love. Well, that may be the culture's perspective on things, but we're talking about God's perspective here. So I want to be sure that I understand what this love is. Uh, We're talking about a commitment or an attitude resulting in proper action in the best interests of another without regard to feeling. 
It's sacrificial giving. How does it feel to be crucified? It doesn't feel too good. And yet I am crucified with Christ. God has a cross for you if you're a Christian. So when I'm giving up my desires and my hopes and whatever it might be, uh, I am hopefully doing the right thing that God calls me to do, giving sacrificially, and later on, I'm going to feel good about it. Now, if you want to add in all the romance and everything on top of that, that's wonderful. I say romance is really a good thing. But you need the undergirding of agape love. And you need to make sure the timing is right on that. Now, here's a big one, guys. You'll never understand this. But it says willingness and desire for communication. I had a young man call me up. He'd been married. He was... um, He was an outstanding guy. He had been a big-time college football player. And he said, we're just having real trouble in our marriage. Could you help us? I said, yeah, do this. Sit down, you and your wife separately, and write me a little note and tell me what you think the problem is in the marriage. Well, here's the guy's note right here. Just a little small piece of paper. He says, "Um, I never saw it coming. Bam, it hit, and I can't tell what in the world is going on. I mean, he was completely clueless. But his wife wrote an epistle, pages and four pages, the full page. And she said right here in the beginning, Mr. Welch, I'm really not sure exactly what I'm supposed to be writing, which is an example of his inability to effectively communicate. First sentence. And then the second paragraph says, If I've already stated, effective communication is one of the main problems in our relationship. And she goes on and on, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's all about communication. Now, it seems that in the uh, courtship, well, I should probably not say the C word, in the uh, engagement period or the getting to know one another in development of social relationships, uh, communication seems to be very easy. And it's just kind of flowing, and we're just kind of talking about things. But have you ever seen that cartoon? Here is the man sitting at the breakfast table reading the sports page. And their wife has got some scissors and she's cutting out two little holes so she can get some eye contact for some communication. Now it says, um, uh-oh, get ready for this, guys. There's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me. And I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head. And it's relentless. And I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, out. you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... It's not easy, guys. Sometimes it's like there's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. <laughs> that sounds really hard. <laughs> Thank you. Ow! Come on, if you would just... Don't! 
not about to nail. Now, uh, you guys that are not married, you might have some difficulty understanding that. But that just means that you haven't really understood yet what communication with a woman is all about. But you can learn. That's the good thing you can learn. But it takes work, and you've got to work at it. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Hey, here's the next one, number nine. Demonstration of a spirit of forgiveness. Have you ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Really? As we forgive our debtors? Well, uh, yes. Now, what is forgiveness? Let's uh, get some scripture. Be kind and comp- uh, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, even as just God in Christ has forgiven you. I'm a little different translation there. So forgiveness is a very important thing, and quickly, this would be our definition. You know, it's interesting. You ask somebody, what is your definition of forgiveness? Well, you just pretend that it never happened. Well, a 10-ton truck ran over you and broke your back. You're going to pretend that it never happened? I would say forgiveness would be a willingness to accept the pain caused by the consequences of another person's sin or their perceived sin. See, they may not have meant it as sin, especially something they said, but you saw it and it looked like sin to you and it hurt. But what are you going to do with it? Are you going to forgive them for that or are you going to make them pay? The world says, I'll make that guy pay if it's the last thing I do. I'll beat it out of him. Or I'll get it out of his pocketbook, or I'll do something, but he's going to pay. And a lot of times in marriage, it's like that. I hear something, a husband hears something that he doesn't like, and he says, you know, that's not right. And he says something that he knows she's not going to like because he wants her to know that what she said he didn't like. And then it just starts that tennis match that we were talking about there. So somebody's got to hit it quickly with forgiveness. I think that's what Christ did for us. He was willing to accept the pain caused by the consequences of our sin and release us from payment for that pain. Well, what do we do with the pain? Well, you take the pain to Christ. He knows what to do with pain. Well, what if you're not willing to release them? You still have the pain, but you'll have something else to go along with it. It'll be bitterness. And I don't know if you've ever known a bitter old woman or a bitter old man, but you know how they got to be that. They had a lot of practice being a bitter young woman or a bitter young... You can't fool around with bitterness. It will change the appearance of your countenance. Now, number 10 is the other side of the same coin. Witness of a clear conscience. I'm asking forgiveness for things I've done wrong. I'm giving forgiveness for things that are done wrong to me. And in marriage, you've got to just be forgiving while it's going on. You're hearing something you don't like too well, perhaps. You've got to be forgiving while that's going on. Now, we're not talking about condoning evil and harboring criminals and all that kind of stuff. We're just talking about interpersonal relationships. You can forgive the person for what they do to you. God will take care of the ultimate uh, 
retribution or whatever's coming for that. So witness of a clear conscience. Proverbs 28, 13, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Here's the goal of Paul's teaching. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And Peter, if your conscience is clear, you can withstand a lot of stress, including slander. Those are my words. It's kind of what Peter's saying there. Two things the body can't stand, guilt and bitterness. So I can take care of the bitterness by forgiving that other person. I can take care of the guilt by asking them to forgive me, especially if that other person is my wife. And we're right there in a close relationship all the time. Number 11, freedom from moral impurity. Now, we've talked a lot about that. You have to decide where you're going to stand in that. The Scripture says it's God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, and that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And then in this matter, this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. God didn't call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not telling you, young people, where you need to operate on the scale. Because you say, well, the Bible doesn't say you can't hold hands. And that's exactly right. But you need to decide what kind of safeguards you are going to have in place so when you get to that wedding altar, you have got a clear conscience and a pure relationship And then you can enjoy all the benefits of romance that God has designed for this relationship between a man and a woman. Here's a young guy. He's um, 16 years old, but he's discovering body chemistry. And so it's like he and this young lady are going to go for a ride. And so they're at the top of this big hill. And she's in the car, sitting over close to him, bench-type seats, of course. And so uh, they start cruising down the hill, and they pick up speed as they're going along. And the guy looks down the way at the bottom of the hill, and there is a brick wall right across the road. Can you imagine? And so he starts stomping for the brake pedal to slow this thing down. And lo and behold, this car doesn't have any brakes. It doesn't even have a brake pedal. Who in the world would design a car with no brakes? God. Because you don't need the brakes if you're doing things God's way. But if you're getting there prematurely, you're going to need to throw out the anchor and everything else. You know what the guy will do? He'll bail out of the car and let you head on down to the brick wall. I've seen that time and again. Where the girl has to carry the burden of hitting the higher numbers up on that scale. Kind of a sad thing, but that's uh, that's the way it is. So you want to be very careful about that. I had another young couple, uh, one of my former students, and wrote me a letter about what to put in the course, and here's what uh, she said. She said, "Uh, you need to talk about this rather awkward subject. We've seen it a lot with our friends. This was 
a mature young lady, married a wonderful Christian guy. She said, that is the area of your fiancé's past. Fortunately, by God's grace, neither he nor I had a history of immorality. But I can, be, I can remember being upset by small things that he had done, like kissing. Hey, if you're kissing, you may be kissing somebody else's wife. I mean, if you're not at the church, at the wedding, and the, the ceremony has just been concluded, well, you have to decide about that. Our friends have had to overcome obstacles such as forgiving their mates for past relationships, insisting that a fiancé be tested for AIDS, and the question of how much to tell, especially if a past girlfriend is currently attending your church. We've seen this subject brought up many times, and we've seen the pain that it has caused. Sometimes uh, people wait until after marriage to tell what needs to be told, and the wife is overwhelmed and very hurt. This thing of the uh, moral purity is probably uh, bigger than we imagine before you get there to the marriage. And sometimes people still don't imagine what's going on after that. But if you can have it the way God intends it to be, I can tell you it's going to be a great blessing. Number 12, acceptance of yourself. Psalm 139, you form my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I can't change my birth order. I can't change my family. I can't change my nationality. There's certain things that I can, can't change. Do I accept those things? Or am I worried about my nose that just is not the kind of nose that I wanted? So what I'm going to be looking for is a good-looking, vivacious, intelligent, gregarious woman who is happy all the time and is going to make me feel good about my nose. Well, that's a pretty good idea, I guess, but it's a little bit unrealistic. And when you come home from work and your emotional tank is empty, and here's your wife at home and her emotional tank is empty, then how are we going to fill each other's up? You need to accept yourself the way God made you and accept that other person the way God made them as well. And we're almost finished. Harmony with authority. What will it be? Patriarchy, matriarchy, monarchy, anarchy, or a 50-50 partnership? Well, I can assure you it won't be a 50-50 partnership because you can't measure if you're doing your 50 if she's doing her 50. And you know what happens when somebody decides, my wife is not pulling her weight in this relationship. So I'll slow down from 50 to about 35. And the wife looks at that and says, now he's not doing what he's supposed to do. So I'll slow down a little bit to 25. And pretty soon nobody's doing much of anything, but they're angry at each other. A husband can't tell what's going on at home, little children cleaning up the house. A wife has a hard time telling some of the pressures down at the job that the husband has to face. So harmony with authority. How well did you get along with your dad, young ladies? That doesn't tell you everything, but that might be a starting place. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And then in marriage, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Now, we could talk about uh, that a good bit. It doesn't mean the man is bossy, but it means that 
he's the one that God is pointing the barrel at. He's the one responsible. In every walk of life, we have a head coach. We have the CEO of the company. We have somebody who is responsible. And according to the Bible, it's the dad. It's the husband. He's the one who's responsible. He's got to live with that woman in a loving and understanding way. But there is authority in all of life. So if we've responded well to that before marriage, probably that'll be a good start on responding well in marriage. Quickly, commitment to biblical financial problems. What's that? Well, giving, we said this morning, giving, maybe 10% is a good place to start. Giving contentment. Are you a content person? If you're just a discontent person, be careful about getting married before you get content. Because, guys, if you marry someone, you're going to marry a daughter of Eve. That's all that's out there. They're not going to be able to make you content. Girls, you're marrying a son of Adam. He's not going to be able, and if you pile all those expectations on him, that may make it even worse. So, my soul wait in silence for God only, for my expectation is from Him. Now, we have all kinds of aspirations, and we hope everybody does well, but we're talking about expectations. Then, avoid bondage debt. What is that? That's where you have past due bills that you can't pay. That's where your liabilities exceed your assets. And that's where you lie awake at night wondering what are we going to do about the money. And that brings stress. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then, God loves a cheerful giver. Number 15. We just have 16 here, so we're about to make it. Sensitivity to the feelings and desires of others. Are you sensitive to feelings and desires of others? How about your brothers and sisters? Here's D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The real cause of failure ultimately in marriage is always self and the various manifestations of self. Of course, that's the cause of trouble everywhere in every realm. Self and selfishness are the greatest disrupting forces in the world. Self, with all its hard manifestations, always leads to trouble. Because if two selves come into opposition, there's bound to be a clash. Self always wants everything for itself. That's true of myself. It's equally true of yourself. You at once have two autonomous powers, each deriving from self. And a clash is inevitable. Such clashes occur at every level, from two people right up to great communities, empires, and nations. There it is. Self. Therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them. For this is the law and the prophets. Last one. History of emotional stability. We're not talking about did you still suck your thumb when you were 15 years old, but we're talking about when a problem comes, do you normally hold up or fold up? Because if you have a track record of holding up, That's going to serve you well in marriage. God has a purpose in those problems, but there can be disappointments. Somebody gets fired from a job. Somebody has a really bad accident. Somebody has some kind of sickness that comes upon them. There are all kinds of possibilities. Marriage is a wonderful thing. But we don't know what the future may hold. But if we know who holds the future, we can hold up under those problems. Here's a man who built his house on a rock. 
Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And when the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. How many of you have a study guide before you there? Okay, if you take a look, there's a little paragraph there, and I want to reiterate what's said. It says, these qualities are not essentially prerequisites for marriage. Or you go down the list, i got this, 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 and I'm ready to go. These are qualities of those who have successful marriages. So I'm not saying you can't get married if you're missing two of them on the list. What I'm saying is there's a red flag, and you might want to do something about those particular ones where you might find a little weakness until the time comes when... God has that person, it's time for you to be married. Now quickly at the bottom there, listed by Norman Wright, a few other considerations that are pretty good. Freedom from thinking you will succeed as the special exception. We don't have a house, we don't have a car, we don't have a job, we don't have any money, but we are in love. Bam! And it's kind of like, we can't do anything about it. It's just, it's, it's greater than both of us. We can't even put into words what's happening to us. Well, maybe you need a speech pathologist or something. I don't know. But if you're going to be married, don't be thinking, oh, I'm the special exception. I don't have those things, but uh, we'll live on love. Benefiting from significant relationships with others, especially your parents. Growing up with parents who were affectionate, firm, consistent, fairly well adjusted in their own marriage. That, that's not true in every case, so we can't govern what everybody's parents did, but that's just a plus factor. Your partner's friends becoming mutual friends, social and economic backgrounds at neither extreme of the scale, proper timing in courtship and marriage, degree of stability in work and residence. Now, those are the marriage success factors. Those things don't guarantee that you will have a successful marriage. But they might be helpful in having a good beginning in marriage. So let me encourage you. This is the time, young people, when you need to be closest to the Lord no matter what else is going on in your life. That's going to take time. It's going to take a personal devotional life. It's going to take going to church. It's going to take hearing some messages. It's going to take being a part of the body of Christ because you don't want to be out there on an island by yourself with all these important decisions going on.